Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. I'll just come up sometimes. See me. in your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, sir. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Hey everybody, Kirk here. I uh, just want to say before we start the episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter. And Facebook. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear your feedback, and you can find us on any social media by searching Silver Screen Time Machine. We appreciate your feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk Classic Film Review. However, today we don't have Kirk again. We have our friend Deanne, which I'm happy to have you again, Deanne. I had a lovely time with you last time when we talked about the sweet smell of success. Thank you so much for filling in for us. Thanks for having me back, Wendy. So today we're going to get in our time machine. We're going to travel to when and what are we going to talk about? We're going to travel to 1953 for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. All right, gentlemen prefer blondes. Now, Deanne, I will admit to you, and I think you may know this about me, I am not a big fan of musicals. It's not my favorite genre. However, this particular film, I really, really enjoy. I really like the music. It gives me, honestly, this feeling of joy throughout the film. What is your opinion of this film? I, like you, well, I say I'm not a big (laughs) fan of musicals, but then I often end up really enjoying them. I say that I only like the really dark ones, but I also really like this film. The dark musicals. What are the dark musicals? Oh, things like Sweeney Todd. Oh, okay, I get you. Yeah. I'm thinking of classic musicals, and I'm like, what dark musicals are there? Cabaret. Uh, There are a few. mm. Yes, true. Okay, just already admitted I'm not the musical expert, so. <laughs> but Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, this film based on a 1949 stage play written by Joseph Fields and Anita Luz. Anita Luz, Luz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just, just has a lot of O's in her name. But the screenplay by Charles Lederer. We're getting all the names today. Yeah, they're not actually too hard today, so we're lucky. But Charles Lederer, that might be the hardest name we're going to have. The screenplay, and I think he changed the screenplay up quite a bit, I believe, from the play. When he was adapting the stage production for the screen, he changed it a lot to reflect the strength of Jane Russell, Marilyn Monroe, and Charles Coburn. And I think he did a lot to really make it a very funny dialogue. There is a lot of very witty dialogue in this as well, especially, I think, particularly Jane Russell's dialogue is quite snappy and witty. I agree, and the chemistry that she has with Marilyn Monroe Mm. and the team that they make is just so enjoyable. Yeah, they're besties. (laughs) They are, and it seems like that's something that, for that period, and even today, is a bit rare to have a film about two bestie women and their adventures. Yeah, and they have each other's back at all times. They're really great bonded friends. You get the sense from the very beginning, it's kind of explained and sort of a song that they grew up together in Little Rock, and they 
were born on the wrong side of the tracks. I'm practically paraphrasing the song now. But they grew up together and they became showgirls because they were from the wrong side of the tracks. They didn't really have a lot of opportunity. So they thought that being a showgirl was their best opportunity. And that's kind of how we start out in the film. We see them growing up as showgirls. Another thing I like about Charles Letterer is he actually... (laughs) what he did with the character of Henry Spofford III. This was originally written as a love interest for Dorothy on stage like an actual adult. And he changed it around to be an eight-year-old boy. And let me tell you, George Winslow, who plays Henry Spofford III, has to be one of the biggest bright parts in this film. I think almost steals the film from everybody, including Marilyn Monroe. He is just hilarious. I agree. I think he needs his own film. Yeah, this kid is very dry humor, very deadpan. He's like Buster Keaton stone-faced with this very dry humor and this very sort of deep voice for this child. It's deep and raspy voice. He's just so funny in this film. You just can't help but love him in this film. And I thought it was interesting that when Charles Lederer was adapting the screenplay, his inspiration for the comic aspects of Lorelei, which is the character Marilyn Monroe plays, was his aunt, and his aunt was Marion Davies. Yes, who, people don't always realize, was a very, very funny, silent film yes. actress. Yes. She also did some talkies in the early 30s, but primarily silence. And because of Citizen Kane and the character that, that is, was sort of loosely based on Marion Davies, I don't know, I thought, well, gosh, Marion Davies in real life, maybe she wasn't that talented. But when I finally saw some of her films and saw that she's very adept at comedy, very funny. She actually wasn't the inspiration for that character. Just people assume that. Uh, we're actually going to we'll get into that coming up soon because we will be talking about Citizen Kane in the very near future. And yeah, that was a big misconception by the public. And it kind of, I think, really hurt her. And I know that Orson Welles said numerous times that she was not the inspiration for the second wife and that he felt terrible about what it did to her and her career. But yeah, she was quite funny, and if you watch Marion Davies' movies and then you watch the character of Lorelai, you can see snippets of Marion Davies. Not that Marilyn is playing Marion Davies or anything, but you can see the sort of actions that you can imagine Marion Davies doing, and perhaps some of the dialogue as well. When we're talking about Charles Lederer again, I did want to mention a couple of his other films. Like I said, he is very good at the witty dialogue, and he proves it because he was the screenwriter on His Girl Friday, which is considered one of the wittiest, snappy-talking films out there. That's an all-time favorite of mine. And that's also another Howard Hawks movie, the Mm. director of this film. I was surprised to find out he did the screenplay for Kiss of Death. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because that certainly is not (laughs) very funny at all. Versatile, very versatile screenwriter. Yes, yes. And Ocean's Eleven. Obviously not the Ocean's Eleven with Brad Pitt, but the Ocean's Mm -hmm. Eleven with Frank Sinatra. And then you spoke of Howard Hawks, the director of this film. He's not really known as a musical director. And in fact, he refused to direct the musical numbers. He left that to the choreographer, Jack Cole. And Jack Cole was completely responsible for directing all the musical production numbers in this particular film because Howard Hawks pretty much said, I'm not doing it. I don't know anything about musicals. I'm not doing it. And probably (laughs) a wise decision. Let the experts handle what they are expert at. We know that Hawks had a lot of experience with comedy and and was fantastic with the comedies. I, I don't think they're... 
there was another musical that he directed, to my knowledge. I don't think so either. He did, early in his career, he did a lot more comedies, Bringing Up Baby and My Girl Friday, as you mentioned. Towards the end of his career, I felt like he was doing a lot more westerns. He did Red River, he did Rio Bravo, and he did El Dorado. So it kind of switched over to there. But yeah, I think musicals was not his thing. But I think that Howard Hawks is probably, between Howard Hawks and Charles Lederer, are responsible for how funny this particular, well, and the actors as well, but how funny this particular film is. Yeah, I think I think they both had a good sense of, of what the pacing needed to be and just how to keep the film moving. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. We start out, as I said, we see Marilyn, her character's name is Lorelai Lee, a lot of good alliteration there. And Jane Russell is Dorothy Shaw, and they're doing their show. And then we find out that Lorelai Lee, Marilyn, has a love interest, a gentleman by the name of Gus Esmond Jr., played by Tommy Noonan. Gus Esmond Jr. is, we find out, is a very wealthy fellow, but it appears to be that his money is sort of a family money. Actually, his wealth comes from his family, and his father kind of controls the wealth and kind of controls Gus. Yes. Marilyn's character, Lorelai Lee, is definitely presented, I would say, as kind of a gold digger. Dorothy is a little bit more the sort of sensible person, kind of trying to look out for her, make sure she doesn't get herself in trouble. Whereas Marilyn, Lorelai Lee, thinks that she is looking out for Dorothy and trying to not let Dorothy get herself into trouble. So the fact is, as I said, they have each other's back. And Lorelai Lee, Marilyn, is trying to snare Gus Edmund Jr. and Tommy Noonan for his money. And he's clearly smitten with her. Yes, so added to the bargain, not just the money. (laughs) Yeah, so he's clearly smitten with her. He wants to marry her, right? Right. But every time they get to the point where there's a chance they might be able to get engaged or something, and the father will call, and he kind of frightens Gus off again. So originally, Gus and Lorelai were supposed to go on sort of a, a wedding trip, I guess. They were supposed to have a lope to Paris. But I guess the father got wind of the matter and said, no, Sonny, you're not going on that. And Marilyn decides, well, I'm going on the trip anyway, and instead I will take Dorothy. So they go and board a ship for Paris. And while they're waiting on the dock, they find out that they're going to have some other company on the ship. (laughs) And it is the U.S. Olympic team. Yes. And they're going to go on the ship with them to France. But meanwhile, we also see that there's another fellow in the background, kind of, as Marilyn and Jane are going onto the ship. We see this fellow. His character name is Ernie Malone. He's played by Elliot Reed. Ernie Malone is clearly being paid to watch Lorelai. It's pretty much told that. But we see right off the bat that Ernie seems to have an eye for Dorothy. Right. So he's being told, you're to watch the blonde girl, and you don't pay any attention to the brunette. And he's like, I'll pay attention to the brunette, too. (laughs) It's kind of the very beginning of the story. And then a lot of the rest of the plot happens when they get on the ship and start to travel. They have a big musical number right in the beginning. I should mention a lot of the musical numbers in this particular film came over from the stage play. Although my understanding is is that they cut a lot of those as well, too. They did cut some down, but most of them came over from the stage play. And those songs that came over from the Broadway musical were written by Jewel Stein and Leo Robin. There's only a couple songs that were not written by them. Hoagie Carmichael, who was kind of a jazz, jazzy Mm -hmm. type 
composer, musician. He often collaborated with Johnny Mercer. He was an Oscar winner for best song in a movie called Here Comes the Groom. I don't know. I've never seen it. I've not seen it. But his songs definitely pop up in in movies from this era all of the time. He's a big time songwriter. His particular songs in this film are Ain't Anyone Here for Love and When Love Goes Wrong, which I really like that song, When Love Goes Wrong. So they have this big musical number that is from the Broadway play, Bye Bye Baby, I think it is. Yes. And then everybody goes off the ship and she says goodbye to Gus and all the shenanigans start to happen. Well, first of all, Ernie Malone approaches Dorothy, right? And he kind of starts trying to pick her up and she's interested in him. And and the dialogue between them is very funny and cute. I I really enjoy it. It's very, like I said, fast-paced, clever, snappy dialogue between the two of them. And really reminds me of what a good actress Jane Russell was. Mm. I think this is my favorite movie that I've ever seen her in. I, I can't say I've seen them all, but her comedic chops and the musical performances, I'd say she's right up there with Marilyn. I mean, they make a really good team. Yeah, they're good in a different way. To me, Marilyn has a ton of screen presence, right? Yes. I mean, she is the person you're looking at on the screen no matter what movie she's in. Her screen presence is legendary. It's off the charts. But Jane Russell really holds her own against her because I really like Jane's wry humor. I think she excelled at that in this film, and I thought it was a perfect complement to Marilyn's dumb blonde silly persona is Jane's wry humor per- persona. I just thought they worked so perfectly together in this film and got along really well together too. Which I loved learning about, that they did get along very well, that they weren't antagonistic towards each other and became very good friends. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, the people that sort of take a back seat in this are the men. I agree. You know, it had been a while since I'd seen this movie, and I had little to no recollection of the men. Yeah. It was all about the women. They're very forgettable. Mm -hmm. Elliot Reed playing the love interest of Jane Russell, he actually was known for he played the prosecuting attorney in an inherit the wind that was probably his best known part besides this so that was a very different kind of part than here i think he acquits himself really well here like i said it's more because the dialogue between him and jane goes so well together tommy noonan to me is completely forgettable in this film and he's kind of an awkward goofy guy in general <laughs> and i think that he did a lot of comedy reflecting that particular kind of persona in the 40s and he is in a pretty significant film besides this he plays judy garland's friend in the film a star is born now i need to go back and watch yeah. that again i i did not remember tommy noonan in that film yeah I, he's yeah. very forgettable and then we do have charles coburn who i think is a little bit less forgettable because he's just funny lecherous old man in this film and Charles Coburn is an Oscar winner he won an Oscar for the more the merrier which if you have not seen that that is a hilariously funny great great movie that is a movie I recommend I would really love to talk about that movie one time I have seen that movie Mm, and so good yeah yeah, I agree Charles Coburn is one of those he's a face that you might recognize before the name comes but he is just a welcome presence in any of these movies yeah what I thought was interesting about Charles Coburn is he only started making films at age 60. Inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that was a man. (laughs) I don't think that happened with a lot of women, but he only started making films at age 60 in 1937. He made a lot of films with Barbara Stanwyck, the Lady Eve he was in as well. He played her father. He's just a very funny kind of actor. 
yeah, so I guess we can get back to the plot since we're talking yes. about Charles Coburn. He plays a fellow called Sir Francis Beekman. His nickname is Piggy for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. We wind up seeing that he meets Dorothy Shaw. He winds up telling her that he owns a diamond mine. And Dorothy becomes very concerned because Lorelai is alone. <laughs> and Lorelai is obsessed with diamonds. And this guy looks like just the perfect kind of stooge <laughs> for a beautiful young girl to manipulate and she doesn't want Lorelai to learn about this and then of course unfortunately she comes right in as she's saying this and here overhears what's going on and immediately I mean Lorelai is supposed to be very stupid but she is very quick <laughs> to catch on to things when there are certain aspects involved like money so she as soon as she sees him she all of a sudden knows that he has this she overhears the word diamond mine and she knows that piggy is responsible and she immediately sets upon a campaign to start flirting with him and trying to hit on him and whatever which is somewhat ruined by his wife coming in <laughs> alas <laughs> yes mrs beekman who was very hoity-toity and proper and covered in diamonds and one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the movie is <laughs> i can't remember the exact way it goes but Piggy or Sir Francis Beekman says, oh, this is my wife. And Dorothy says to Ernie Malone, I thought that was his diamond mine. Because <laughs> she's just yes, covered in diamonds from head to toe. And I just thought that was so funny. And she shows Lorelai this diamond tiara she has, which is, winds up being significant later on the plot. But she shows her this diamond tiara. And Marilyn, again, you get these stupid kind of things. She thinks it's a necklace. She doesn't know how to put it on. And then she finds out it's a tiara. She thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. They go off and you start to see that Marilyn has some idea that she's going to get this tiara. And she's putting together in her head a plot to do so. And Dorothy is, of course, very worried. So the film kind of goes on from there. It continues that Marilyn keeps hanging about with Piggy and Dorothy keeps hanging about with Ernie Malone, right? Yes. But then and here we're going to talk about Henry Spofford III. Marilyn's looking for a passenger list and she's trying to see which passengers have a valet because she thinks that anybody that has a valet is very wealthy. And she comes across this Henry Spofford III and she says, oh, I th I've heard of this Spofford family. They practically own a state, a really big one. I think it's Pennsylvania, <laughs> which, you know, kind of a thing for us since we're in Pennsylvania. She decides that Dorothy should date this Henry Spofford III because she wants Dorothy to find a rich man. I mean, that's what she's preaching to her the whole time, that she should find a rich man. And she even says some sort of line like, I want you to be very happy and stop having fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Jane just says, that baffles me. <laughs> so she thinks, I'm going to fix up this Henry Spofford III with, with Dorothy. Dorothy. With Dorothy, yes. And so she goes through all this great length to go to the head waiter. They're all going to have a cocktail. They're all going to have dinner. And she goes to the head waiter and demands that he put this Henry Spofford III at her table. And meanwhile, we find out that a lot of men have paid money to get a seat at her table. And she kind of blackmails the maitre d' a little bit, which is, again, she's playing this stupid persona, but it's quite clear that she's very wily, which to me, I think, was very similar to the real Marilyn. Yes. And in fact, even in the film, even in the context of this character, she says something to the effect of, well, I can be very smart, but the men don't like it. Yes. And so when you see the film entirely through that lens, you start to think, well, yes, yeah, this is fairly calculated. Yes. She's very calculated and manipulative. And actually, that line was put in by Marilyn Monroe. That line was not in the script. 
that she wow. said. Yeah, so she put that line in herself. But this isn't far off the persona of Marilyn. This was how Marilyn was in real life. She would appear very naive. A lot of times she appeared very victim-like, but she was actually very calculating and very wily and very shrewd. And she knew how to get what she wanted. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that about her. Uh, I think people don't credit her for the kind of character strength she had. I don't think people grasp the complexity of the person that she was. I think people want to see her in the most reductive version of a dumb blonde character that she played and nothing more. They also like to victimize her. Yes. She was so victimized. Hollywood did this to her. And that's not really accurate at all. If you really look into Marilyn, that's not very accurate as to what happened. I think Marilyn took advantage of Hollywood or took advantage of people in Hollywood to get where she wanted to go, not vice versa. That's the impression I got from Marilyn. I've done quite a bit of study on her. So Yeah, and I think to get to that level of stardom, it, it's no accident. It's very seldom an accident. No. Th- yeah. No, yeah. especially the level she's at, which is legend, basically. But Anyway, let us get back to, so this is, to me, a very funny scene in the movie. It's really funny because you have to remember that earlier in the film, when she meets Piggy, Marilyn says to him, having heard so much about you, I expected you to be much older. And Dorothy's like, oh, come on, lay off, honey. (laughs) But then it's funny because that's an important thing to remember because later on when they come to the table and they're all sitting at the table and Ernie also bought a seat at the table, so he's sitting there as well. So Marilyn comes up and immediately arranges that Henry Spofford will be sitting next to Dorothy but he's not present yet and there everybody else is at the table they're all talking and we're waiting on Henry Spofford the third and then all of a sudden the maitre d comes up and says oh Henry Spofford the third has arrived and Marilyn gets real excited and she's whispering to Dorothy please try to make a good impression something along those lines it's not that exactly and then here comes to the table this boy that's eight years old and that Marilyn's face when she's looking at him like this astonished look she gives this child and he comes and sits down and and Dorothy says to him well Mr. Spofford having heard so much about you I expected you to be much older yes yes and then and then the funniest part about it is that George Winslow Henry Spofford III says I'm old enough to appreciate a pretty girl when I see one. (laughs) In the most deadpan of voice. Yes, he was very deadpan. Really, the funniest scenes of the film, he's in it. I mean, he's just so good. And a little bit about George Winslow. He was discovered by Cary Grant. He heard him on a popular radio program called People Are Funny. People Are Funny was a radio program that people were supposed to be on one time. And Mm. they found George Winslow so funny that he was on a record amount of times. He was on 20 times, which was more than any other person. So that's how funny they found. He was funny in real life, this child. And Cary Grant got him introduced at 20th Century. He got him a contract. He got him a role in Room for One More, which was an early Cary Grant film. And then he also got him a role in Monkey Business. He's, of course, best known for this role, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He also had another memorable role in Mr. Scoutmaster, which I don't know if you've seen that. (laughs) I have not. I haven't either, but apparently he 
does a lot of fast talking, witty dialogue with Clifton Webb. Oh, I have to see that. Yes. In fact, I think I'm going to become a George Winslow completist yeah. and try to see all of this. Well, you won't have to look too long. It won't take you too <laughs> long because very sadly, he did not transition into an adult star. I guess he had a very awkward transition. He'd lost that voice. All the shtick that he had was gone. And he would wind up spending four years in the Navy during the Vietnam War. And he would become a career photographer and also a postal worker. And what I thought was most interesting about George Winslow is around middle age, he started to take in feral cats and he would spade and neuter them. And he wound up having like 25 feral cats that lived with him. He considered that his family. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So that's in case anybody wanted to know more about George Winslow, that's the information about him. Back to the plot. What winds up happening is that Dorothy winds up finding out because she's walking down the deck the one day and she sees Ernie Malone. And he's taking pictures in a window. And she's like, what's that about? And she goes in the window and looks and she sees it's their room. And Lorelai and Piggy are in the room. So she immediately goes in and asking Lorelai, was there something that you were doing that was incriminating? And it's a very funny story about (laughs) Africa and a python and a goat. (laughs) And (laughs) I thought it was so funny because the scene is very funny. And then she says, While Piggy was squeezing the goat, Ernie Malone was taking pictures in that window. And Marilyn says, what for? And she says, well, the National Geographic magazine. (laughs) I just, just, so many lines are so funny in this. So they come to a realization that Ernie Malone is a detective and probably hired by Gus's father, Gus Esmond Sr. At that point, they think, well, we have to get the film back, right? Because we don't want those pictures being shown to Gus. She's worried that Gus is going to get upset. So they go on this plan to go get these pictures, the film back. And this is, to me, I think this is the funniest scene in the movie. And again, it's going to involve George Winslow, but... (laughs) Of course. (laughs) We can't even even say the the scene without laughing. (laughs) Marilyn goes into Ernie Malone's cabin to search the cabin. And Dorothy keeps Ernie Malone with her. She's pretending they're on a date. He doesn't know that they're aware of what's going on yet. So Marilyn searches the whole room and she can't find the film. So she's going to go out of the room and she realized that she can't get out the doors locked i don't know how the cabins lock from the inside and don't let the occupants out i'm not really sure only in movies yeah i mean i guess it had to be part of the plot so (laughs) she thinks she might be able to get out the portal window which is those circular (laughs) windows and she does this little thing where she measures her hips to the window (laughs) to see if they fit and she starts to get out the window and she gets stuck and as she's starting to get worried and panicked and all of a sudden Henry Spofford the third comes along and she says oh please help me please help me out this window I'm stuck and she makes up some ridiculous lie like oh the steward locked me in and he says well, why didn't you ring for him? <laughs> and she says, well, I didn't think of it. And he says, are you a burglar? <laughs> and she says, no. And, and then she's like, please just help me. And he's like, I'll help you for two reasons. She's, she's like, never mind the reasons, just help me. And he says, one, I'm too young to go to jail. And two, you've got a lot of animal magnetism. <laughs> yes. And again, that kid's deadpan face yes. and that voice. <laughs> it's so great. And then- What winds up happening is that Piggy starts walking down the corridor and she's still stuck in the window and he's trying to help her out and Piggy starts walking down the corridor and she's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he finds this big blanket and he says, here, throw this over yourself. So she's got this blanket all covered up to her neck. 
just her head is out this portal <laughs> window. And it looks absurd. She looks like she's eight foot tall. It looks very funny. And, and Piggy's like, what are you doing up there? And she says, it's so much nicer up here. And he was saying something about her having a cold. And she said, oh, she doesn't have a cold. And he said, well, let me feel your hand. And Henry Spofford is under the blanket. Yes. So she can't give him her hand because she's in the portal. So we can see Henry Spofford's hand comes out. And then Charles Coburn starts caressing <laughs> his hand and goes to kiss his hand. And Henry Spofford goes, stop that, with like his little froggy yes, voice. Yes. And Charles Coburn is like, what? What's going on? And, and Marilyn's like, oh, laryngitis, I guess. And she gets this sort of deep, brassy voice. And just that scene is so funny. I think that's my favorite scene in the film. I have one that for me rivals it though. Oh yes, what is that? I have to talk about my favorite number whose title I will probably mangle, oh, which is the Hoagie Is Michael. there anybody here for love? Ain't there anybody? Ain't there anybody here for love? The Jane Russell song in the gym. Oh my goodness, the censors must have been I was asleep. Gonna say, I was going to say, could, you could see right in those men's shorts. I was fascinated by the design of those shorts. They're wearing very short shorts. And they are flesh colored, and except for like a little band of black yeah. on them. Mm. And so you do feel as if you're seeing a lot more than oh. maybe you probably are. No, if you look carefully, you can see more. <laughs> good to know. Maybe I didn't have that good a print. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, go back and watch it. Because they're doing, it's not like they're just standing there in these shorts. They're doing splits. Oh, no, that's they're true. They're doing like all these exercises and things. And they're flinging themselves all around. Around. At one point, they're doing like the Busby Berkeley choreography, and it is just so funny. And she is just so cool and calm and collected. And then to top it all off, she falls in the pool, which that just happened. Yeah. And certainly wasn't scripted. And Howard Hawks liked it so much, they kept it in yeah, the film. So it, it just feels very spontaneous. And what a professional she was. She just kept going on with the scene like nothing had happened I mean clearly it was a mistake it hadn't meant to happen one of the guys knocked her over by an accident into the pool and she just continued with the scene and they printed it that way such a trooper yeah she was but I guess another very funny scene actually probably my second favorite is they don't find the film in the room so they figure he has it on him they get him to go to their room he comes and Marilyn again this is when you see Lorelai's character is not stupid she's got this plan where she's got the heat up really high she's mixing a drink with five kinds of alcohol in and <laughs> three sleeping pills and she's mixing it all up and he comes in and she gives him the drink and meanwhile they have two drinks too but theirs are just water and bitters and she tells Dorothy this beforehand and she makes a very interesting limerick toast it's kind of disturbing <laughs> Arnie Malone drinks this and he's like of course like gasping because it's all these different alcohols and they're just staring at him like is something wrong and Jane Russell gives him a glass and he thinks it's water and he drinks it and it and he's like that's straight vodka and she's like did you want something else or <laughs> and he was like no I and then he starts to feel very tired and very hot and they're like well let us take off your coat so they take his coat and they take it in the back and the film is not in there either so they're like well it must be in his pants. And then they're like, well, we'll have to get those too. And so they come back and he's pretty much almost asleep in the chair because of the sleeping pills and the alcohol. And 
then what they do is they say, oh, he probably needs a glass of water. And they take a pitcher of water and they basically pour the water all over his pants. And so he's like soaked. And they say, oh, we can't leave you in these wet pants. And he says, oh, I'll just go back to my room. And they hold him down and Marilyn rips his pants <laughs> off of him. And he's all screaming. And he's like, what kind of a dinner party is this? And the <laughs> steward comes in. And Jane says, oh, take him to his room. He's not feeling well. Let's put something on him. And they give him this big flowery lingerie looking like <laughs> robe to put over. And he goes out with that on and then they do find that the film is in his pants but then it turns out that he winds up having a recording device in their thing where he's recorded mm -hmm. them as well and he knows now that they know they confront him they they say they basically don't want to see him anymore and also Marilyn uses this opportunity to manipulate Piggy into giving her the tiara and then they wind up landing in Paris and they go shopping and they go to the hotel and as soon as they go to the hotel they're put in this little room and in the room is Ernie Malone and Mrs. Beekman and this little man and he says he's with the such and such insurance company and Marilyn says I never buy insurance <laughs> <laughs> and Dorothy says sell it to Malone he needs it in his line of work and the guy says oh no we insure this diamond tiara and we hear it's in your possession and we want to know what's going on and Marilyn says it's none of your business <laughs> And they're like, no, it's kind of our business because it belongs to us. And she refuses to give it back. She says it was given to her and she's not returning it. And then the manager tells them they're not staying in the hotel because Gus has canceled the line of credit and responsibility for them. So they wind up out on the streets of France and then they wind up finding a place to start working again. And that's probably where we want to... Yeah, we don't want to go too much further or we'll give away some, you know, yeah. key spoilers. I think that sums it up quite well. I would say I want to mention the costume designer, this person named Travilla, which I was not familiar with that name, but he did a lot of the costume design, I guess, for 20th Century Fox. I think he must have been a 20th Century Fox guy because he did How to Marry a Millionaire. He was nominated for an Oscar. He won an Oscar for The Adventures of Don Juan in costume design. Uh, and he worked with Marilyn numerous times, all the way back to Don't Bother to Knock. A couple interesting things he did is he did the costume design for Pickup on South Street, which mm. I didn't necessarily think there was very much costume design on that one. But um, it, it would be distracting if you did notice the costuming yeah, in that film. Yeah. Yeah. But then he also did the costume design for something more recent, the Thornbirds miniseries hmm. with Richard Chamberlain. And Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, and yeah. I thought that was interesting. The beautiful pink dress. I mean, well, we have yeah. to talk about diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yeah, so he designed that dress. Her wardrobe in this is gorgeous. Marilyn. Yes. And Jane and Russell's. Yeah, and yeah. Jane Russell's too. And the nice thing I thought about this film is that they weren't dubbed. They let the girls sing. Yes, I had read that they sort of had Marnie Nixon on hand who dubbed basically Everybody. every musical voice in the 50s. Yeah. But for the most part, they, they, they used Jane and Marilyn's voices. Yeah, Marnie Nixon did a couple lines in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend when she sings all those operatic no's, no, you know, in the beginning. Yeah. And also the very end, just a couple where she goes up high in that song, Diamonds Are a Girl's best friend Marnie dubbed her just very few times other than that none so that was really nice there was a lot of complaint about the unfairness of the salaries in this <laughs> Marilyn made $500 a week you would say that Marilyn is probably the lead star in this film yes although I think 1953 she wasn't very she's ascending mm -hmm. Jane Russell is an established star. star it seems strange now right 
Yeah, because Jane Russell made 200000 for doing the whole picture. Marilyn made 500 a week. So that was a, something that I think bothered Marilyn, even though she was working her way up. She felt like she was the star of this show. It's called Gentlemen for Fur Blondes. She would go and say, I'm the blonde. Um, she was very specific about it. I thought it was interesting when I was looking things up. One of the male dancers in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is an uncredited George Chikaris. From West Side Story. Yep. Which, yes, I'm going to have to go back and try to spot. Yeah, it says that he, after the men, when they pretend like they're committing suicide, he appears directly to her left as Marilyn begins Diamonds Are Girls' Best Friends song. It's just as she sings the word quite continental, he's on her left. So very specific. So you can look specifically for him. This film earned $5.3 million at the box office worldwide and was the seventh highest grossing film of 1953. And that really, I think, speaks to the box office appeal of Marilyn Monroe specifically. And that same year, I believe she also did How to Marry a Millionaire. She did it right after. They were back to back. So what a great double feature that would be. Another, the girls that are friends and, and looking for husbands be a lot of fun to look at both of those side by side. I really like How to Marry a Millionaire. I probably like it a little bit better than this one, maybe because they're not singing. <laughs> Although I like the songs in this, to be honest. But yeah, I really like that. The cinematographer was Harry Wilde, not very well known. Again, I think that these were a lot of Fox contract people, but he did do his kind of woman, which is, I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's I've heard very good things about that. The movie itself isn't great. What's great about the movie is Vincent Price. Okay. It was supposed to be this film noir, and Jane Russell's in this movie too. It's supposed to be this film noir that's supposed to be very serious. And at some point, I guess it got rather butchered. I think this was Mm. during our Howard Hughes time at RKO. I think that was RKO, to be honest. Okay, I'm pretty so, sure yeah. that's an RKO movie, and I think this was during Howard Hughes's reign, and he would tend to butcher up movies really badly. This was supposed to be this very serious film noir, and at some point, Vincent Price just started making it this spoofy thing. He's supposed to be an actor, and he plays this bad actor, and he starts going around quoting Shakespeare all the time and being very over the top, and it really just makes the film so much better than it had been previously. Robert Mitchum is in this film. This is a Robert Mitchum film. And Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell and then Vincent Price. But once Vincent Price starts doing all his shenanigans, it's just really Vincent Price's movie. And it just becomes completely different and so much better than what it was before. I have to track this down. This sounds right up my alley. it's, It's really delightful. But I don't know if you have any other comments on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The only thing that I'll say is that my expectations were set very high for this movie because I think that the the way that I came to it was in a very indirect way. When I was a little girl, material the Material Girl mm. video, yeah, we the, should say Madonna, that. Yep. just kind of like the homage to this was just the coolest thing in my universe. I thought that was amazing. And so then when I started watching some of the older films and saw that it was a Marilyn Monroe film, oh, I have to see that one right away. And it did not disappoint. Mm. Just as exciting as the Madonna video. Yeah, it's really a good feeling type of film. If you don't come away from this film with a smile on your face, then I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There's maybe something wrong with you, to be honest. This is just delightful is the word I would use for it. It brings me a lot of joy to watch this film. We should do our star ratings for this. And I know how you are with your star (laughs) ratings. So I'm kind of curious to see what you're going to say. I'm braced. (laughs) Okay. Well, this this one's a little bit complicated. I'm going to go ahead with three and a half stars for the movie but for is that is there anybody here for love scene that gets an a plus 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 i 
absolutely love that scene. Well, if we start ranking scenes out, we're going to be in real trouble. <laughs> but yeah, it's really interesting you said that because that's exactly what I was going to say. Three and a half stars. I love it. It's joyful. It's delightful. I think it's very funny. I think the screenplay is excellent. This isn't your upper echelon type of film. Not even your upper echelon type of musical, I would say. This is 20th Century Fox. This is not MGM. Not that there's anything wrong, but it, it's just not in the same class as some of the other really great musicals that are critically acclaimed and earned a lot of Oscars. So, but I really like it. I really enjoy it. And I think it's funny and I laugh every time I see it. And I've seen it a lot. And I think this is a good one too. If you're trying to introduce people to who maybe aren't into older classic films and are resistant to it, I think this is one to try. I I just think it's a crowd pleaser and might be a good place to start. Yeah. And you know what? Another thing I wanted to say before we, we should wrap up soon, but I did want to mention, since you say the diamonds are a girl's best friend scene, that chandelier, you had said Busby Berkeley before. That reminded me very much. Women in the chandelier yes. in that scene reminded me very much of Busby Berkeley. That's something I'd wanted to mention when I saw it. I said, oh, I got to mention that. So I did. I mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. And yes, nods to Busby Berkeley. Yeah. I felt like, scenes. yeah, I did yeah. feel like that's what yeah. they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very reminiscent of his sort of big production musicals in the 1930s. So I think that's about all we have for today. And again, Deanne, I do want to thank you so much for stepping in for Kirk and being available to help us out. You're a treasure. (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate all your knowledge and your opinions. Well, it's a pleasure. And thank you again for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Good, and you're welcome back anytime that Kirk can't make it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to wrap that up for today. Join us again next time where we go back in time to yet another great classic film. What could it be? It might be. It might be Citizen Kane. So you want to stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast. You don't want to miss any of our great episodes. On behalf of Kirk, on behalf of Deanne and myself, this is Wendy from Silver Screen Time Machine. Wendy and Kirk's classic film review saying goodbye. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Time Machine. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro music composed by Heidi Engel. Outro music composed by Maximus Monk. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick and Kirk Kolkowski. Recorded at PCTV Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Uh